Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're not even human beings, but we're like the famous wiener dogs of Instagram who have like millions of followers. <laughs> the, see, and I didn't even know there were famous wiener dogs of Instagram. I didn't of either. I'm trying to get dogfluencer trended, <laughs> but I'm not having any luck. <laughs> Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 229. The advent of autonomy is like the biggest change to the airspace literally since flight began. And I mean that in every sense of the word, right? There's going to be more planes and flying cars flying in the airspace in 20 years by a factor of 100 than there are aircraft flying in the air today. That is the voice of Keenan Weirbach. He's the co-founder of a company called Zipline, a service that uses flying autonomous drones to deliver stuff. By now, I'm sure you've seen all sorts of images and videos and stories about the coming age of drone delivery. But in some places, it's already a reality. It's already happening. And in those places, the companies delivering stuff by flying drones are solving the problems keeping drone delivery from taking off. And truly, that was an unintended pun that I could just take out, but I'm going to leave it in because most of the time, the problems that prevent the new things, the very new things, the futuristic things that will become the commonplace things in our lives one day are the problems that keep those things from taking off. Things that no one could have predicted until someone actually tried to make those things real and then manageable and then affordable and then easy and scalable and so on. With Zipline, they've been making and using aerial autonomous drones for years now to deliver medical supplies in Rwanda and Ghana. And Keenan Weiberbach, a skilled builder, tinkerer, inventor, engineer, and drone enthusiast, discovered there was a need, a problem to be solved when it came to medical supplies in a moment of serendipity. My wife's an epidemiologist, um, and she was telling me these stories about uh, health campaigns, you know, vaccine campaigns that just get stuck on logistics. And so, of course, the wheels are turning. It's like, okay, maybe drones and, and that actually, that that seems like maybe there's a there's a real problem to solve here that, that people are going to really care about. Um, but at the same time, I will warn you, I'm a very skeptical person. So it's like, yeah. okay, I'm going to dig into this. We're going to go learn about this. And I'm just sure there's going to be a thousand reasons why, you know, this is never going to work. <laughs> we can't ever solve this problem. Uh, and so we spent a bunch of time in, in Central America, where my wife is from, uh, in Africa. We, we visited this one uh, medical supply warehouse uh, in Tanzania. And outside the warehouse, 
as far as you could see, you know, football fields of pallets stacked, you know, two stories high in places. We're just outside this warehouse. We're like, what's, why do you have all these medical supplies, you know, vaccines, pharmaceuticals, other things? Why are they outside? Um, and, you know, one of the people in the delegation sort of quietly, because they were kind of embarrassed about it, they were like, yeah, that's all expired medicine. Oh, wow. And that was one of those like moments where it clicked of like, okay, you know, th- there's a the supply is actually not the big problem. There's actually something much more practical uh, around around how to run, you know, how to get the supply from, you know, point A, these warehouses to these doctors. That was one of the many, that, that was one of the experiences yes. that kind of just, it like the bit flipped in my head from like, this is probably not a problem we can solve to like, holy shit, we have to solve this problem. And it just became really clear you could leapfrog over all these factors by doing this with drones in an on-demand way. So by attempting to solve this huge problem, Zipline learned how to solve an enormous number of existing problems in the world of drone delivery. And right now they're trying to take what they've learned, which means take all the problems they've solved so far and expand into the United States, which means they're in the process of discovering more problems. And the reason I keep saying this word problem over and over again is that this audio comes from a new podcast about what we learn by solving a nested recursion of increasingly specific problems. Undiscovered, previously unknown unknowns that endeavors like Zipline uncover and then make known, and in so doing, solve those problems for other people, for everyone else who will face those problems in other domains that may have nothing at all to do with drones or medical deliveries or anything else that they're currently working on in their domain, which is the story of progress in many ways. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that this is one of those tangents I like to get on, and I'm very happy to learn and then share with you that there is a show about this called What's Your Problem? And our guest in this episode is the host of that show, Jacob Goldstein. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and I host a podcast called What's Your Problem? And before that, you did a lot of other stuff. You come here with some real bona fides, as they say in my part of the world, a dense and impressive CV, as they say in other places. (laughs) What got you obsessed, fascinated, interested with starting this podcast in particular? So uh, before I started What's Your Problem, I was the host uh, for a long time of the podcast Planet Money, one of the hosts. And Planet Money is a show about economics. And, you know, before I hosted that show, frankly, I didn't know anything about economics. Kind of a a big admission. But, you know, the the idea of that show was like, let's learn about economics together, right? And, And for me, the great big, exciting idea at the heart of economics is everybody can get richer, Mm. right? Like the pie can get bigger. The world is not a zero-sum game. And I think at some level, that's a counterintuitive idea. I think at some level, it feels like, you know, if one person is getting more, they must be taking it away from somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. It must mean it's coming at the expense of somebody else. And for me, the great, big, exciting insight of working at Planet Money, of economics is that's not so, right? And in fact, in the long run, over the last couple hundred years, Almost everybody on the planet has gotten richer. And and there's essentially one way that happens. And that is 
by people figuring out better ways to do stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Ways so that if you work an hour or if you work a day, you can grow more food or, or make more light or do whatever it is you do better or more efficiently. That insight, the idea that figuring out how to do stuff better means everybody can be better off is a big, exciting deal to me. And it's why I'm starting this show. Uh, what a cool concept. Well, well, let's listen to a little bit more of the episode about Zipline, and then we'll really get into it. So somebody is loading, it, it looks like a plane, a plane about the size of a person onto some kind of a launcher, right? Onto like a ramp. Exactly. Well, there's propellers. The, the propellers are spinning. <laughs> I like your narration. <laughs> and then there's a guy. What's the... the guy there doing? Oh, it, it just launched. He just launched it. Yeah. The wingspan's about 10 feet. So picture, you know, it's like a, a big RC plane. Okay, a, a big remote control plane. And by the way, I mean, it's not in fact remote controlled, right? Like what does it, is it actually just flying on its own? Yeah, so it, it is flying. It's flying automatically all the way out to the delivery site. And so does that mean there are people whose job is to sit somewhere, basically do air traffic control and make sure that- Exactly. And do they generally have to do anything or do the drones take care of themselves? The drones take care of themselves. Okay, so here, let's keep watching. So now- now the drone is going to make the drop. Yeah. First of all, you have to picture a package. So picture a, a cake box, right? Size okay. package. Like it? Um, with a paper parachute on it. That's in the belly of this drone. And so the drone okay. flies over uh, the delivery site. Okay. Uh, and it. when it drops it, that paper parachute will inflate and, and the package drifts to the ground. Uh, a little bit like a cartoon is how I, is how I picture <laughs> it. Oh, I'm watching it right now. Yeah, it worked. It worked. It's looks kind of fast. It's coming down kind of fast, yeah. Yeah, it's it does come down fast. It's a this is a, the fun of the engineering challenge here. If you come down really slowly, um, that accuracy uh, uh, that basically goes, ah, gets worse. It's because uh, the wind uh, can blow it to the side more. Basically, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. After this commercial break, more with Jacob Goldstein and Zipline, and what's your problem? and everything in between, right after this. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, Time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. So you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a the therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. 
have to say, I was one of those people in that other camp that thought that uh, everyone doing well in the world is taking away something from someone who's not doing well in the it world. It feels that way, doesn't it? It really feels It does. That it way. does. I grew up in rural Mississippi where it's very, there is no such thing as wealth. And the, the only people you look up to are doctors and lawyers in that, in that regard as people who've like, oh, wow, they made it. They have a nice house. They have a pool. And so the idea of billionaires or the idea of CEOs that is so alien. It might as well be, you might as well be talking about rocks on Mars when it comes to that sort of thing. And I deeply appreciate that the, the democratization of knowledge in the sense that podcasts like planet money, I think that probably at least half the people I know have heard of that podcast and listened to it and for it to reach out to the places where I grew up and then deliver the messages and then have this podcast come along and, and sort of take a tangent from that and then deeply explore it. I just think that's incredible. It's an incredible part of modern life that you can say, uh, I was wrong about that. And here is the way it is by my reckoning. And I would like to share that with you. And it gets everywhere. I'm seeing that so much these days. And I just, I don't know. I, I don't think this is a question. I'm just want to say that's rad. <laughs> it is rad. It is rad. I mean, your phrase, the democratization of knowledge is really nice, right? And clearly there are a lot of bad effects of the internet in particular, right? But there are also a lot of good effects. And I feel like lately the bad effects have been more sort of salient or striking. And it's it's nice to remember, oh, right, like you can just make this show uh, and anybody who wants to pretty much anywhere in the world can listen to it, which is extraordinary and would have been you know, really unthinkable, even when I was a kid, and I'm not that old. Uh, I'm also, that's another nice thing about the modern uh, world is that old doesn't quite mean the same thing. When I was a kid, uh, <laughs> once you hit 40, like, I don't know what happened. Everyone looked pretty rough uh, when I was a kid. <laughs> I don't know if it yeah. was the smoking, the drinking, or the sunlight, or what, or, or eating uh, fried chicken for every meal. I'm not sure exactly what did it. but It sounds like it was an amazing first 40, but you had to pay for it on the back 40. <laughs> Uh, whiskey, chicken wings, and a cigarette every afternoon. Living the dream. Sounds not too Living bad. Living the dream, yeah. <laughs> in your episode about the drone stuff, there was a part about in there that I really liked that was so much of what set the stage for that were advances in cell phone, smartphone technology, which themselves are motivated and incentivized by all sorts of things happening in a different marketplace. But the it reminded me so much of um, James Burke, who is my absolute hero, and I'm working with him right now to make a new uh, connection series through Curiosity Stream. And his shows as a kid just blew my mind about how the progress in technological spaces is, there's just so much happenstance and randomness and weirdness for things that other people are doing in one space. And then somebody in a, in a, in a tangential space goes, oh, wait, that could work in my thing. It could help solve this problem that I could not figure out that, oh, this person solved a different problem and that helps me solve my problem. And your whole show is this. I, I love the premise of you're talking to people who are trying to figure out how to do something that nobody knows how to do yet. And it's usually the focal point is some problem they're facing to get to some goal farther ahead. This blows my mind. I love you made this. I Pretend that's a question and jump off of that. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, the... Just to seize on that phrase you used of, you know, people trying to do things that nobody on earth knows how to do, right? Like that is an exciting idea. And and I do love this idea of the frontier, right? And we think about the frontier 
say, in terms of of science, right? You think of researchers out there trying to figure out new things about whatever, the cell or subatomic particles. But there is also, you know, a technological frontier that particularly today, right, where so many businesses are tech businesses. At some level, any business today almost is a tech business, right? So there are so many businesses today uh, where people are out on the technological frontier trying to do a new thing. How do you actually make a real drone delivery business? I mean, it turns out you have to solve a million technical problems to make that work? How do you build an app that actually can really teach people a new language? I mean, you get into these really interesting artificial intelligence problems about like teaching a computer to have a conversation, like at all kinds of levels, sort of expected and unexpected, you find people out there kind of at the edge trying to do new things, which is, you know, intellectually exciting. Yeah. And when someone solves a problem in one domain, thanks to this new information ecosystem we have and this new access we have to other people doing stuff the problem that they solve there might end up being a problem you also have and then all of a sudden this problem like this population where this problem has appeared across like (laughs) this like epidemic of this particular issue within a lot of different domains becomes cross solved across all those domains this excites me and i don't even know what to do with it because i don't know enough about this world to like be as excited as i feel like i could be but i feel a lot of excitement about that principle well i'll just you you mentioned in passing that detail from the the drone episode of of what's your problem before and and it is worth maybe just unpacking that a little here yeah let's I get do into feel it like let's talk about that it's episode. exactly what you're talking about right so it's this moment so so in that episode of the show i interview this guy who started a drone delivery company and uh they, you know, at first he was like, oh, well, there's drone companies in the world. I can just go buy a drone. But it turns out they were like military drones that weren't at all built for the kind of like, he needed essentially the UPS truck of drones, right? Mm. He needed this thing that was going to fly in the rain. It was going to be cheap. It was going to be efficient. And that just didn't exist. And so he realizes he has to build his own drone. And the thing that allows him to do it, and this is what you were alluding to before, the thing that allows him to do it is weirdly the iphone (laughs) because it turns out Mm. now that there's whatever a billion iphones and other smartphones in the world billions probably at this point all of these components that you need for a drone have been made super reliable and super cheap for iPhones, right? So the there's some uh, uh, device that, you know, tells your phone which way is up and which way it's moving, right? Uh, that you need in a drone. Just simple cellular communications, right? That has become, the, the, the uh, devices that do that have become incredibly cheap and reliable. Even just chips, right? The chips that are optimized for phones are powerful and, and efficient and reliable. And so, This is the thing you were talking about before, right? All of this work and all of this cleverness that went into designing and then importantly, making cheap and efficient and reliable these components for the iPhone were what allowed this guy to build this drone company that is sort of amazingly now a big up and running drone company, not in the US, but in in Rwanda and Ghana. They're doing literally like hundreds of flights a day, every day, all over these countries delivering blood and medical supplies to to hospitals this episode is so neat because i it it illustrates many of the premises and the thesis of the show so well there's a the part that like stuck out to me immediately was his uh, this individual has his his wife is an epidemiologist he just happens to be in a place where he sees medical crates outside 
he asks what's going on with these crates of, of medical supplies just lying around. And they say, oh, that's expired medicine. And this is like when he connects the thing that he's obsessed with to a place where it could be applicable. He's like, wait, I bet I could use drones to get this medicine where it needs to go. There's something wrong with the supply chain. I love that there's a problem in the world that he wants to solve. And in so doing, discovers other problems along the way that must be solved to get to the solution to that problem, which is this this recursion of problem solving becomes the whole idea of the show. It's such a cool concept. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in his case, you know, so he was a he was a, a robotics guy, and he, uh, I like him a lot. His his name's Keenan Keenan Weirobeck, and one of the things I really appreciate about him, I mean, I don't I don't know him before I interviewed him, but one of the things I admired in our interview was he was clearly sensitive to this idea of making sure the problem he set out to solve was a problem was really a problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he pointed out that a lot of times engineers, technology people will just sort of fall in love with the engineering side mm. and build something to solve a problem that is not really a problem for the people you think you're solving it for. And so the start of his story is finding the right problem. And that moment you mentioned, and I believe it was Tanzania, is this moment when he realizes, oh, there are many places, especially in the developing world, where they have the medical supplies they need, but they're not able to get them from, you know, the capital city or some central location out to the places where the people are and where the doctors are. Uh, uh, because, you know, their logistics networks aren't that, aren't that robust, basically. And he realizes, oh, this is a real problem uh, that I might be able to solve with drones. And, and then he sets out and, you know, in the way we're talking about with the iPhone parts and it basically building a new kind of drone from scratch and this whole system succeeds. And then his new problem is trying to do it in the U.S., which is also interesting uh, and, and difficult for reasons I would not have expected. You can call or you can use like a service like WhatsApp and a person gets what you need, puts it in the drone, the drone shoots out of this launching thing and you go into detail about all these things. And there's a catching device that grabs the, the 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 drone so they can land safely. When you think about this as a story, okay, cool. That look at all these engineering feats and these technological innovations, and I can imagine seeing this getting applied in other places and other people hear about how they solve this. One day, Amazon is going to send me shaving cream this way or something. <laughs> and, then, and then, but then he runs up against in U.S. airspace. We have a. Uh, uh, some sort of appeal to tradition weirdness where we, we their technology is available in these developing countries to allow aircraft to know exactly where the other aircraft are using small devices that'll go on drones. But in our country, what was the pushback? Why, why couldn't that just be stuck in a drone? And what, like, I, what was the, why is this a problem? Right. So this, this is the part that was really surprising to me. Apparently, uh, according to this guy who co-founded the drone company, in many countries in the world, including Rwanda and Ghana, the first two places this company, which is called Zipline, by the way, this drone company, worked, uh, there are regulations that require every plane to have a, a device, like a kind of transponder, that allows anybody else who wants to, basically, you know, with the right equipment, to track all of the planes in the sky, right? Which seems like... Uh, Reasonable. It seems reasonable to me. I don't know anything about this, but it seems like a very reasonable proposition. And it turns out that in the U.S., uh, you 
in, in, there are places where you can fly a plane without having one of these devices. So uh, without having a transponder that allows anybody to, you know, electronically know your plane is there. And that is there for some combination of historical reasons, right? Because we've had airspace for a long time and, and essentially a kind of what seems to me to be a quite an uh, American appeal to, oh, you know, freedom, right? This idea of like cowboys in the sky, just flying their airplanes. Um, and so what that effectively means is, you know, if you are flying a drone, uh, it's harder for that drone to ensure that the airspace is clear, right? Because you cannot assume that any plane that's going to be on your flight path will have a transponder. And so, uh, absurdly, the way, you know, th this company, Zipline, is doing a couple of pilot projects in the U.S. now, and sort of breathtaking absurdity, they have to have people on the ground looking at the sky wherever their drones fly to be able to say, nope, there's no airplanes there. It's safe for the drone to fly, which is like this incredibly, you know, old fashioned thing, right? It's like, they're like, I don't know what, it seems like something out of the 19th century. And, and uh, Zipline, this company, they're working on sensors to detect you know, any plane that might be in the sky. But so far, you know, these drones are small and light. And the problem is if you try and use radar or cameras, it just winds up being too big and heavy to go on these little light drones. And uh, therefore, they're sort of stymied, not by, you know, the basic technology, which seems hard, but by this weird regulatory problem that I guess it doesn't seem easy, but it's certainly unexpected. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that I I imagine this happens all the time, but I I just felt like I thought we already did that, and it turns out in some places, yeah, that the answer would be yes, we do, and then in this country where I thought we had the most advanced aircraft, airline, everything systems, uh, there's a cultural reason more than there is a technological reason behind it, which introduces a whole different range of problems to solve and then work around, or now you might want to get involved in. Uh, regulation and politics and that sort of thing and it, it the complexity the way it unfolds and then the way these problems shoot out in these in these uh multiple dimensions and the way that if you think you watch if you're listening to this and you're thinking about the thing that i'm obsessed with there's the concepts like norm changing and and uh the what does the word progress mean and those sorts of like how do we how does yeah. how does the future actually get here you get a real insight into that in this program because you're seeing that it's it's from billions of little problems and uh, sometimes little bit a little a little larger problems along the way being hacked at until there is progress in these spaces and you accumulate all of that together and this is one of the major engines of change itself. Am I on the right track there? Yeah, I mean that's really interesting. You know, I was thinking, I mean, it seems like on your show you talk a fair bit about. Uh, cognitive biases is mm -hmm. that a fair a fair way to think about it? And I, oh, yeah. and I was thinking about this particular instance of of this this uh, odd regulatory fact in the U.S. that there's this basic technology that would seem to solve a lot of problems that we don't require. And it seems like I mean, you tell me, but I feel like status quo bias is the simplest way into that one, right? Like, yeah, it's totally. It's an appeal to tradition, and it's also just this the momentum of this is the way it works why change it it's scary to change things there they get it immediately goes into psychological and sociological effects for which we have a giant literature a, a huge 
uh, genealogy of ideas there. We know a lot about how all this works and also how to approach these issues. The I find that you see this in company, other companies, whether it's like in crypto spaces or it's, uh, SpaceX or stuff like that. They there's this feeling that we can just sort of brute force our way with technology to Star Trek the next generation. And then along the way, you, you immediately are confronted with all these psychological uh, mechanisms that are going to cause problems. Same, same with the vaccine and, and delivering it and getting it out to people. Like if you haven't rolled into that, how people work, how behavior uh, organizes itself around concepts, you will be facing problems you can't brute force fix with money or technology. And, and that's in the show. Yeah. I mean, you know, it makes me think of uh, another one of the early episodes uh, that that we didn't send you because we haven't made it yet, but I did the <laughs> interview is, is with uh, a woman who's the CEO of Zooks, which is this autonomous vehicle company owned by uh, owned by Amazon. And, you know, the thing I was trying to get to the bottom of with her is like, I keep, it keeps sounding like autonomous cars are almost here and yet they're never here. And, you know, the bottom line, as I understood it from her is like, autonomous cars are great when they don't have to deal with other human drivers. Right. <laughs> and the really hard thing to teach AI about is human behavior essentially. So like she gave the example of when two cars come up to a, you know, say a four-way stop, right? A, an intersection without a light. Like, yes, there's some official rule about whatever the person on the right goes first, but we all know that that's actually a very cultural kind of interaction and sort of who goes first and how aggressive you are changes from city to city, even from neighborhood to neighborhood, right? And teaching that to an AI is like the super hard part. Uh, which is really interesting, and in a way, a version of what you're saying, right? It's this—it's another kind of frontier where technology meets kind of human, oh, what weirdness, right? Human humanness, certainly. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the uh, some episode way back we talked about um, smart thermostats that would show, that would tell you uh, your usage. Different places they would release the information to the public of like this is what your how much your neighbors are using, and the idea would be you find out that you're using a lot more electricity than your neighbors and you lower your usage of electricity and then the whole system has less of a load and we're saving the environment and all these things. But in some regions, that's what happens. In other regions, uh, I think it was Texas specifically, when people found out they weren't using as much electricity as their neighbors, they used more <laughs> because they were like... Uh, it's like, oh, why, why why are we being so cheap? Our, yeah. house could be, our house could be warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer like everybody else. <laughs> The, I, I want to talk about a couple other episodes before we bounce out of here. I, I don't want to give away the show, but I like some of these problems and I'd like to hear a little no, more. No, give about it away. It. Say okay, everything. Cool. Yeah. This sounds like this show is going to be people who are listening, like, okay, this is a bunch of tech stuff. Like, uh, but there's episode two, as you have it currently planned, it's about ramps for wiener dogs. Yes. <laughs> what kind of problem could somebody have making ramps for wiener dogs? Well, this is a good question. I mean, first of all, the first shocking thing about the wiener dog ramp guy is that, excuse me, the first shocking thing about the wiener dog ramp guy is he's sold like $30 million of ramps for wiener dogs over the past few years. So first of all, it's a shockingly big business. Um, the interesting wow. thing to me about him is he, I mean, he's just a really interesting guy who started all these businesses, who got kicked out of high school. He's just a charming, interesting guy. He represents also this large and overlooked, I think, universe of, 
you know, mid-size online businesses who, uh, in a way related to what mm-hmm. you were talking about before, about there being sort of, you know, tools in one space that wind up working for another space. What you see in, in this universe is there are now all these tools that make it really easy to, uh, to start a business on your laptop, right? Almost for free. And he's done that a bunch of times. So his problems are problems lots of different kinds of businesses are having. One, he gets his dog ramps uh, from Asia, uh, from uh, China and Vietnam. And, you know, there's been all of these supply chain problems. Shipping has gotten super expensive. He's moving production to Mexico. So he is sort of representative of, you know, importers all over the world in dealing with those problems. Maybe even more interestingly, um, as you may recall, about, oh, about a year ago now, Apple made this uh, shift on the iPhone, where basically, if you're an iPhone user, it got easier to not be tracked so intensively on your phone. Be like, you know what? I don't want Facebook to know everything about me. And you just sort of click a button and that Mm. happened. That was like an update Apple made. And I remembered a little, like I chose to be tracked less, but it was not a big deal for me. But it turns out that shift was a huge deal for companies built on advertising on on Facebook and Instagram, which this guy's wiener dog ramp business was, right? So he had built, you know, in the earlier Facebook knows everything about you universe, he could figure out basically exactly every person who needed a ramp for their wiener dog and advertise to them. And then suddenly it became much harder for him to do that. So that's a really interesting problem he had. And like a lot of other businesses, he pivoted to uh, influencers, right? Started paying directly people who were, you know, social media Mm. stars uh, to uh, sell dog ramps for him. And one of the delightful things about his story is it turns out the key influences for him were not even human beings, but were like the famous wiener dogs of Instagram who have like millions of followers. The see, and I didn't even know there were famous wiener dogs of Instagram. I didn't of either. Followers. I'm trying to get dog fluencer trended, but I'm not having any luck. <laughs> that is incredible, uh, and I love that too. That's a I'm I'm one of the I'm a uh, I do am not in the I hate the ads that are targeted toward me camp. Uh, I like the ads that are targeted toward me. I have found all sorts of cool stuff because uh, the social media websites figured out that I like things like watches and everyday carry stuff and uh, and weird coffee cups. Oh yeah, uh, I own these things now because I did every I did that over the pandemic. I was like, I deserve to have these things. What, what's uh, like? What's what's one watch? Tell me one watch. I have this watch that um, it is. It, it's an the the watch face is completely. There are no numbers on it, and there's a there are three tiny windows that rotate that reveal the numbers, and uh and they then the windows fade out toward the edges into so that it's very sharp in the middle, and then you, you hazily see what's coming up next and what was in the past. And like this it. watch is made. This is the only watch that this company makes, and uh the company is a. Um, architecture firm but somebody there was like i have this idea for a watch and i'm just going to try to sell it and somehow it the algorithm found me and said i bet you'd like this and i was yes i would and i got it and i feel very happy about that (laughs) yeah i have some uh for me expensive running shorts uh that i'm pretty sure i found that way and that i love so i suppose i should be grateful but i still opted out of being trapped oh i understand completely don't get get me wrong i get i get both sides of this uh no it is amazing how good how good it is and now i see a lots of ads for expensive workout clothes that do appeal (laughs) 
expensive workout clothes that do appeal would be an awesome tagline for the advertisement. Uh, that's free to anyone listening, by the way. You got it. Just send me a pair. Just send me a pair of your overpriced running shorts. That's all I ask. Uh, yeah, yeah. One pair of shorts is acknowledgement. And you're an influencer, so this whole thing could work out for everybody. I have a bad habit. This, I think this comes from, uh, this, is, this is sort of like the home shopping network network. Uh, for the for the modern era, but I like to get on Kickstarter and look at weird stuff and go, yeah, I'll buy one of those. Um, oh, interesting. What was what's a favorite Kickstarter purchase? Let's see, what was my favorite Kickstarter purchase? There, there's one called the Couch Console that I thought was that's been pretty cool. It has like a gyroscopic cup holder inside of it. It's it's a totally unnecessary purchase that I that I can't believe I, I did, but it, it's been nice. Gyroscopic cup holder is pretty compelling. It's, it's pretty cool. It also has a charging dock. So you just put your phone on top of it, charges the phone, and then you have your gyroscopic cup holder. And so if you want to jump on the couch and, and marathon something, you've got this nice device. It is so similar to things that you see in a sharper image or things that would be on the home shopping network. I get that that's what this really is. But one of the things I like about doing that it, or one of the things that is insightful is the um, when you back something there, it almost always goes through a billion problems that and they and they will send you emails saying, "Oh, that's interesting. We're trying to make this thing, but like uh, we just realized that you know to manufacture it, we need this and we need that." I, I remember the the first thing I kickstarted was a, a extremely thin iPhone case, and they eventually just couldn't make it. Because they were like, it turns out you can't make it that thin. We didn't know you couldn't do that. And there are reasons uh-huh. why they're not that thin. Maybe I should figure out a way to make an episode of What's Your Problem around somebody trying to sell something on Kickstarter. I've, every single Kickstarter I've ever contributed to has sent me more than 10 emails saying, I'm sorry, it looks like this thing is a thing that's hard to do. We're working on it. And then they'll send you another, like, hey, we fixed that, but it looks like uh, to make it, we're going to yeah, have to do I gotta this. Figure out, I got to figure out what the best version of that would be for the show, but I like it. I, maybe I could get them to, to like talk to me, you know, to do an interview every time they hit a, hit a problem. Oh, that would be really and cool. Make an episode at the end when either they succeed or fail. Yeah, I'll take a note and to, and to remind you, I'll send you one of those emails as an example of one of those that said, yeah, hey, sorry, we can't. It turns out you, there's not a certain machine die that will allow us to do this part so we have to invent it and it's been really fascinating let me talk about two other things and then we'll bounce out of here duolingo i love duolingo i've played around with duolingo forever i didn't realize they were that they had so many issues with trying to figure out how to have the ai speak to you and that it seems to me that if they're going to solve that problem that's going to be something that's applicable all across our new futuristic world of having conversations with AIs. Like that feels like a Star Trek Next Generation problem to solve. What what went on there? Yeah. No, I was alluding to that one in our in our conversation, this idea that if you really want to teach people language on their phone, basically, they need to have some kind of a spontaneous conversation in the language they're learning. Right. So uh Duolingo is really interesting. The the guy who started the company, Luis Van An, was a computer science professor. So, you know, Duolingo, if you've used it, it seems like this kind of warm, fuzzy, you know, there's this cartoon owl that's their mascot. It's very cartoony. It's a language learning app. Um, but sort of under the hood, it is like a hardcore AI company. And, mm. you know, even the stuff they're already doing is like one of the things uh, Louise told me in the interview for the show that's really interesting is like, it's pretty clear from the social science literature that this sort of, when people are are learning and, and being tested on what they're learning, it's ideal if they get about 
80% of the questions right. Because mm. if you get more right, then it's like too easy and you're not learning. And if you get uh, less right or fewer right, um, then it's too hard and you get frustrated and you quit. So, so this is a sort of clear, apparently, from the social science literature and, and what they're able to do at Duolingo because essentially, you know, they have tens of millions of people using the app and they're very clever computer scientists. Uh, they know you sort of individually what you're likely to get right and what you're likely to get wrong. So when you're doing an exercise, it feels just like a standard cookie cutter, you know, language learning exercise, but it turns out it is tailored to you and it is built so that you get eight out of every 10 right. Uh, so like, that's a fun example of, of what they've succeeded in using technology for. Um, in terms of the problem they haven't solved it, it's what you were saying. And Luis was really candid about that in a way I appreciated when I was interviewing him. He was like, look, we're good at teaching people. Duolingo is good at teaching people uh, to read and to write pretty good at teaching people to understand spoken language. But if you really want to teach people to speak a new language, they have to have a spontaneous conversation in that language. They just, it's just, that's just what you have to do to teach people a language. And it turns out people on their phone don't want to just be like randomly matched with some actual person speaking another language to them. That's not comfortable for most people, it turns out. And so their real problem is, as you said, you know, getting to a point where a computer can have a simple but natural feeling conversation. And as you say, that is not just their problem, right? That is like one of the great frontiers in AI is this idea of, of natural language, a computer that can have a conversation with you. And it, it may not be them that figures it out, but you know, the way progress in AI and computer science has worked is like typically once somebody figures something out, it becomes licensed or just commodified pretty quickly. Everybody is able to use it pretty quickly. And so that is a, a great example of one of these great big intellectual frontier problems, right? Teaching computers to talk, basically really talk, not just say words, um, is this giant, you know, decades old kind of heart of AI problem that has this manifestation on this kind of little language app, right? But it's, it's as you say, the same problem with huge amounts of, of connections to all kinds of other applications. It's so cool. Uh, I Let me ask some, some wrap-up questions. Um, sure. And also, for people listening, there's an episode uh, where you talk to the, a company that, that starts companies, and one of those companies is Moderna. I mean, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> like, yes, just... yes. And in fact, the guy, so I, this guy, Nubar, Nubar Afayan started this company that starts companies like 20 years ago, and it had existed for 10 years before they started Moderna. And he just, you know, randomly 10 years ago had a conversation with somebody who was working on, on mRNA. Uh, and he wasn't even thinking of vaccines at the time. He just was like, wow, what if we could put something into the body and then the body could make the medicine itself? Um, and, and yeah, that conversation is kind of meta, right? It's really a lot about what does it mean to start companies? And oh, again, a kind of link to your interest in cognitive biases that, that conversation is a lot about sort of the myth of the entrepreneur mm. and his whole thing is like, can we turn entrepreneurship, uh, from something that is this kind of mythologized 
you know, hero centric idea mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to something that is much more institutionalized, right? He's trying to make a factory where what they build at his factory is companies, mm-hmm. which is fun and big and interesting. I love that too. Cause like, like I said, I love, um, James Burke and connections was all about busting up the great man. Um, yeah. myth of his, connections of is a, is such a, it's like every like person I know who makes stories about science likes that show. Yes. That's like the, 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 like, whatever science journalists, science journalist is, is the connections guy, right? Like that's a very, yeah. yeah. He invented the, as far as I'm concerned, he created the format. Like he created the, the, I'm going to talk to the camera and I'm going to bounce around and go to different places. And I'm going to weave a lot of things in the story. I, um, I meet with, with James every Friday and have a little chat with him over zoom and, uh, over COVID. That was one of my side projects was I, I wanted, I, really wanted him to make a new connection series. So we worked on it together and until we had a, a pretty good idea for it. And then we, um, we pitched it to everyone you can imagine from Netflix to national geographic had lots of meetings. Eventually we found a place and he, uh, it, it will appear, it will be available for people to watch the final connection series early next year. So I'm very proud of that. That's great. Congratulations. It's, That's really exciting. It's the best. Like he's, it's for me, it's a, Super heroic, which is odd considering that he would bust that apart immediately. But I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. That's really exciting. Let me ask you uh, some questions that you ask in the show that I think are great. Um, what is your current favorite app on your smartphone? That is a good one. Um, here, I'm just looking. So I got this app recently uh, called P- Picture This. <laughs> and uh, what it does is... It's a it's a generic name. Maybe they have big ambitions. But what basically you do with this app is you take a picture of a plant, and it tells you what kind of plant it is. Uh, and I am it turns out like the target audience for this because just last a year I bought a house for the first time, uh. kind of late in life, and I to my own surprise kind of turned into like a yard dad. Like we got a <laughs> yard, and it's just dirt, and I'm trying to figure out what to put in the yard, and so like. I'm into plants now. I got a few house plants. I never cared about plants before, but it turns out plants are all around us. So I I walk around my neighborhood taking pictures of the plants and figuring out what they are and thinking, oh, I like that plant. Maybe I could put it in my yard. Here's the here's the thing. I thought I was I was prepared for you turning the question back around on me. And the Oh, what is your favorite well, app on your phone? It's my current favorite. I have a lot of weird ones that I play with it from time to time. And the one I was going to tell you about was called Seek, which is the exact same kind of app. It's the ah. it's an app you point at an animal or a plant, and shockingly it says, here's what it is. Here's the scientific name. Here's some more information about it. Here's the Wikipedia page. Also, I put a little push pin on your map showing where it is in the world that you found it. And also... Uh, here are other things like it if you want to go looking for it. And I saved all this and I gamified it if you want to. Or you can just like know what it is and move along with your life. It's And like what it, what are the settings where you use it? When, when do you use it? Use it for, for like plants you might want to plant or just something that looks cool? Like what, what prompts you oh, to use when, it? When hiking or just uh, uh, camping or uh, sometimes, honestly, like the very first thing I did was pointed at my cat to see what would happen. It was like, and it, it worked. And <laughs> is I was it like, a cat? And I was like, first of all, is it a cat? I think. <laughs> and it was like, I was like, no way. And it worked. And I'm looking at it right now. And it's like a lizard and a box turtle and a pitcher plant and a blue heron and a brown pelican. And that's cool. And it's 
wild. I, I see. I realize now. I pointed at animals more than I do anything. I put it. It bugs. It identifies. If you see a bug, oh, and you're bugs like, "What is, is it? fun?" Bugs is. Fun. It's so cool. So I really recommend it. It's just called Seek, and I believe the information goes into a pool that adds to some sort of database that helps scientists understand oh, what's going on. I like that. I like that. Awesome. That's great. Look, I, I really appreciate you taking some time for this. Uh, I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. This is uh, a real uh, moment for me to get a chance to just chat and hang out with you. It's great to talk with you. Uh, thanks. You're very uh, kind and a generous host. Hey, I love doing this. It's my favorite thing in the world. I can't believe I got to do it. So I hope you feel the same way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Good fortune. Good fortune to us both. All right. Take care. Enjoy your gardening. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. That show that we talked about just now on this show is called What's Your Problem with Jacob Goldstein. For links to everything that we talked about, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, we're now available on Amazon and Audible and Stitcher and SoundCloud and iTunes and Omni and Spotify or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Yes, it was a blog before any of this other stuff. So now it's called at NotSmartBlog on Twitter, maybe forever. We're also on the Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, make it better, help pay for transcription and other things, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free but at the higher amounts, you will get posters and t-shirts and signed books and other stuff I haven't even told you about yet. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. The interstitial music in this episode was by Incompetech. Tell everyone you know about the show. That's the easiest way to support it. If one of the episodes meant something to you, gave you value, taught you something, got you onto some sort of strange obsession... Just share that somewhere on social media. I will really appreciate if you do that and we'll probably share it again on your behalf. Cool stuff's coming up soon. We have Hank Green coming up on the show. We have a whole episode about uh, modern romance, all the things we know about dating apps and what does and doesn't make sense psychologically when it comes to trying to find your mate. Short, medium, long-term, and lifetime term. <laughs> all that's coming up soon. That episode in particular has many experts, many scientists, and I look forward to sharing it with you. Also, my book, How Minds Change, comes out on June 21st. There'll be episodes about that, and we're going to have a big launch for that in New York City. I'll tell you all about that stuff very, very soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.